Hello and welcome to Habemus Papam, episode 194, John the 22nd. Dear brothers and sisters, Annuncio Vobis. Annuncio Vobis. Annuncio Vobis Gaudium Magnum. Gaudium Magnum. Gaudium Magnum. Habemus Papam. So, today's Pope was, you guessed it, French. His given name was Jacques Duess, and he was born in Cahors, France in 1244 to a wealthy family. And I'll just start this episode like I will the next couple episodes. Apologies for my French pronunciation. He seems to have studied law from an early age uh, from the Dominican fathers in his hometown, both can law and civil law, and he seems to have taught law for some time. He was intelligent, he was competent, he was also pretty simple and lived a very frugal life. He was ordained a priest at some point, and he was made the Bishop of Fréjus in France. And his friendship with King Charles II of Sicily led to his being named the Chancellor of the Kingdom of Sicily, which, if you remember, was really Naples, on the mainland of Italy. On May 18, 1310, Pope Clement V transferred him to be the Bishop of Avignon, which, if you remember from last time, is where the papal court had settled by the end of the last episode, which is a pretty big deal. In Avignon, he became very close to the Pope, who made him in 1312 a cardinal, which brings us to 1314 and the death of Pope Clement. The cardinals came together at the French town of Carpentras and were incredibly divided. There were three real factions, those from Gascony, which was the home region of Pope Clement, which consisted of a lot of his relatives that he had made cardinals. There was a second group made up of various Italian cardinals, which is a smaller group. And then the third group made up of other French cardinals. And if you remember, Gascony wasn't technically part of the Kingdom of France at that time. It began. Uh, be, it was French in culture, but it, it belonged to, uh, to England. Now, the divisions were not only present in the College of Cardinals, but outside the conclave between their various hangers-on. By July, the anger between them had boiled over and led to fighting in the streets. That prompted the Gascons to march into the city and kill several Italians, chanting, Death to the Italian Cardinal's death. We want a Pope. The Italian Cardinals heard this, and they escaped through one of the walls in the palaces. And this seems to have been planned by the Gascon Cardinals to force a Gascon Pope to be elected. But the Italians' escape seems to have thwarted their plans. So with the College of Cardinals divided between three different factions and actually three different towns, the conclave drew on for several months. King Philip the Fair, who, if you remember from last time, really pushed the Pope around, tried to force the Cardinals back together, but he died in November of 1314. He was succeeded by his son Louis X. And each side was threatening to just elect their own Pope and divide the church completely between the different camps, but no one yet had pulled the trigger. After two years, finally, in March of 1316, the factions came together, provided that they would not be compelled to go into seclusion by the secular rulers. King Louis X entrusted the conclave to Philip, the Count of Poitiers, who gradually escorted the cardinals to Lyon. But then, in 1316, King Louis X died, and his son and successor, King John I the Posthumous, was born king and then died five days later. So there's this big power vacuum in France, as well as in the church, and Philip, the Count of Poitiers, decided that he needed to break his promise and just get these cardinals to get along with electing the pope. In June, the cardinals were locked in the Dominican convent in Lyon and were told they could only come out when they had elected the pope. Several candidates were proposed and rejected until the finally uh, Cardinal Jacques Duez was selected. And on August 7, 1316, he was elected and took the name John XXII. Jacques was chosen because he was old and didn't look very healthy. The party from Gascony wasn't that happy with the choice, but at least he wasn't going to last that long. 
But it turns out Pope John XXII was a fairly vigorous pope. He was intelligent. He was driven. He knew how to hold and wield power. If you remember, Clement V had left the papacy in very difficult financial straits, full of corruption and intrigue, and at the mercy of the King of France. So John XXII centralized the administration of the Holy See, bringing more of the powers of the church under papal bureaucracy. He streamlined the collection of taxes, and he split large, important dioceses in France so that there was less of an alternate power base against the papacy. Things moved much more efficiently and effectively, and the Pope was much more in control. And fairly quickly, he was plunged into a series of conflicts which would test his abilities. The first centered around a number of plots on his life, which were discovered almost immediately upon his election. Apparently, the Bishop of Cahors in France wanted him and his two closest cardinals dead, and plotted to use poison and magic to bring about their demise. The poisons were discovered, as were several wax figures of the Pope and the cardinals with spells written on them, as they were being uh, brought into the city by the papal police. Now, eventually, word got out that it was the bishop who had cooked up the whole scheme, and he was arrested and put to death. The next major test came with a conflict between secular rulers. We're used to conflicts with the King of France after the last couple of episodes, but the King of France at this point was Philip, the Count of Poitiers, who had just locked up the cardinals in the conclave, when his five-year-old nephew and the king died unexpectedly. Needless to say, he wasn't as potent a force as his father, Philip the Fair, and the turmoil surrounding the succession limited his ability to make trouble for the pope. No, today we're not dealing with France. We have to step back and talk about a struggle between the pope and the Holy Roman Empire, which is just great. It's just like old times. Now, the dispute starts before the papacy of John XXII with a conflict between rival claimants to the Holy Roman Empire. The two claimants were Frederick of Austria of the House of Habsburg, it's an important name in history, and Louis the Bavarian. They were both elected on the same day and crowned the same day, and neither, of course, recognized the other as legitimate. Now, tied up in all this was the age-old conflict in Italy between the two rival factions of Guelphs and Ghibellines. The Ghibelline faction sided with Louis the Bavarian, who naturally is going to be in conflict with the papacy. The two fought a pretty bloody war which resulted in the decisive Battle of Muldorf, where Louis routed Frederick and held him prisoner. Louis began a process of solidifying his power by moving south into Italy. His first big affront to the papacy happened in Milan, where he was crowned King of Lombardy by the deposed and excommunicated Bishop of Arezzo instead of the Archbishop of Milan. Then he moved south, and on entering Pisa, the people shouted out, Death to the Pope! Death to the Florentines! Long live the Emperor! But before he could enter the city, some of the wealthier and more Guelph-oriented closed the doors. So Louis besieged the city, eventually won, and then moved on to Rome. Now, the Romans were pretty angry at the Pope because the papacy was so firmly ensconced in France. They wanted the Pope back in Rome where he belonged. And they offered the Pope an ultimatum, either come back to Rome or we'll side with Louis. The Pope wasn't showing any signs of budging. And eventually, in January of 1328, Louis entered the city. Now, he brought with him a lot of the spiritual Franciscans, the Fraticelli, who we've heard about in past episodes, who the papacy had condemned as being heretical. But many of the common people thought they're the real holy ones because they lived out this radical poverty. So Louis wanted what every holy Roman emperor wants, to be crowned holy Roman emperor in Rome. But the pope, of course, wouldn't do it, so he had to have the people of Rome crown him instead. He turned to Chiara Colonna, the guy who had led the assault against Pope Boniface VIII and who was the tribune of the people of Rome, and he crowned him in St. Peter's Basilica on January 17, 1328. Louis then turned to the tried-and-true tactic of any emperor who opposed the pope, which was schism. So he got the Fraticelli and other bishops in his train to preach opposition to Pope John XXII, that he was illegitimate, that he was a heretic, 
And so they set up a college of electors among the clergy in Rome and elected a radical Franciscan, Brother Pietro Ranaliarde of Cordoba, who took the name Nicholas V, which makes him another one of our antipopes. On May 22nd, the new antipope was ordained, and the Emperor Louis the Bavarian was crowned again in St. Peter's Basilica. So, as we said, we have another antipope, and now the Emperor has to get him to stick and to get the whole church over to his side, and it wouldn't work. The Franciscans, especially the spiritual Franciscans, were on his side, but not many of the cardinals went over, and most of the clergy remained firmly on the side of John the 22nd. Among those Franciscans who went over to the antipope side, there's a familiar name, William of Ockham. William was a theologian and a founder of the Nominalist School of Philosophy. You'll probably know of him from Occam's Razor, the idea that the simplest solution is usually the true one. But his biggest contribution, if we can use that phrase, was in the realm of nominalism. Nominalism was the belief that there aren't natures of things, human nature or cat nature or dog nature, but we just nominally group things in our minds. Now, this is a strain of thought which would gain popularity and is responsible in one way or another for many of the difficulties of modern philosophy today. But for now, William is just a schismatic. And the reason for the, res- for the Franciscan split with the Pope had deeper roots than just that they didn't like him. There had been a major debate within the order, not just among the spiritual Franciscans, about the poverty of Jesus and the apostles. Now, several within the order wanted to teach absolute radical poverty, that Jesus and his apostles had absolutely no property, either individually or in common, and that to follow the gospel, the church must do the same thing. William of Ockham and others supported this view. The Pope, however, condemned it definitively. And if you remember, in the gospel, Judas is described as the one holding the money bag. So they at least had some property in common. And this led to the initial rift between the Franciscans and the Pope, which would eventually lead to outright schism. So anyway, these Franciscans promoted the anti-Pope Nicholas V, and they published all sorts of various tracts against John XXII. Louis and Nicholas's time in Rome was short. The Romans were not particularly happy with the German occupying troops and supplies were getting short. Plus, there was a military pressure from Robert, the king of Naples, who was the head of the Guelph faction in Italy and a major papal supporter there. With Louis gone, Nicholas's support began to dry up and he had to follow the emperor north, eventually ending up in Pisa. Louis had to leave there and again, the anti-pope's position became tenuous. Papal forces were closing in and he was hidden by an imperial official, but even then, eventually, it was clear the jig was up. Even some of his Franciscan supporters had begun to back away from him, and Pope John XXII promised mercy if he submitted. So the anti-pope Nicholas V turned himself over to the Archbishop of Pisa, saying that he would publicly recant his case against the Pope and do penance. He did this publicly in Pisa, and then was taken on board a ship to Avignon, where on the 25th of August, 1330, he made a public confession of his sins to the Pope, and was absolved by John the Twenty-Second and given the lenient sentence of living out a life of penance in the papal palace. The conflict with Louis the Barbarian also petered out. The Pope demanded that Louis renounce his title of Holy Roman Emperor since he was not crowned by an actual Pope. Louis resisted, but political pressure back home began to turn against him. Both in northern Italy and in Germany, the common people were sick of conflict and demanded that Louis make peace with the Pope. He started negotiations and even said he would be willing to abdicate the title of the Holy Roman Emperor, but this never really came to fruition. It just kind of fizzled out. But the conflict was not over completely, and this is not the last we'll hear about Louis. Now, the last major incident during the pontificate of John XXII centered around his own theological opinions. In 1331, he preached three sermons about the afterlife, each of which conflicted with the traditional teaching of the church. In those homilies, He said that he thought that the souls of those who had died did not immediately receive their judgment, but that all would have to wait until after the resurrection of the body. 
this thought is based on the reality that human bodies are humans are our body and soul and that the time between our death and the resurrection of the body is pretty unnatural to us we're meant to be body and soul together but it was contrary to the prevailing teaching of the church William of Ockham and the Franciscans on his side loved it. They said that the Pope was a heretic, teaching something contrary to the faith, and thus could not really be Pope. Most of the theologians agreed that the Pope was wrong on this point and said so. And the teaching of the Church today is that the souls of the departed are immediately brought to their reward or punishment, even before the resurrection of the body. What do we make of this? Well, the first thing is that we have to understand how the Pope phrased his sermons. Cardinal Jacques Fournier made the point at the time that the Pope was not speaking definitively, but as a private theologian about an undefined area of church teaching. John XXII confirmed this was his intention, but it didn't stop the controversy, of course. Anytime the Pope says something that seems to be dogmatically questionable, it, it causes a scandal. His explicit enemies in the Franciscans hounded him, and even his implicit rivals, Cardinal Napoleone Orsini being the most foremost, tried to use this against him. So the Pope recanted his opinion on December 3rd, 1334, and he said that the souls of those who had died participate in the beatific vision of God even without their bodies, so far as the state and condition of a separate soul permits. He died the next day, December 4th, 1334. He was 90 years old. He was buried in the Avignon Cathedral and was succeeded by Benedict Twelfth. but we will talk about him next time. Thanks for listening to Abemus Papam. You can check out the rest of the Catholic Bites podcast at catholicbitespodcast.com or find us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. God bless you.